The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello, I'm Hugh Linehan and you're very welcome to this latest edition of Inside Politics. We are looking to spread our wings a little bit in terms of how we cover politics and political ideas over the next while. So we're going to be continuing with our weekly analysis of the domestic political agenda with our own experts and with voices from across the Irish political spectrum. But we do also want to think a bit more broadly, sometimes about trends and subcurrents in political thinking. Today's podcast is hopefully a good example of what it is I'm talking about. Angela Nagel probably came to the attention of Irish Times readers first due to a controversy on our opinion pages back in January, and we touch on that in our discussion. But our main subject is her fascinating, sometimes disturbing and extremely thought-provoking new book, Kill All Normies, an exploration first and foremost of the connections between online trolling culture and the so-called alt-right, and what role all of that played in the election of Donald Trump. But it's also a broader critique of the ideological culture wars prosecuted by the left as well as the right in recent years. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about the role of culture in the development of politics, whether transgression has been co-opted by misogynistic trolls, the symbiotic relationship between left liberal identity politics and the alt-right, and why so far in Ireland it appears we haven't seen a significant radical right movement. So without any further ado, here's Angela Nagel. Angela Nagel, I think a lot of people, a lot of Irish Times readers in particular, might have become aware of your work because of um, a piece that you wrote following a controversy which happened on our opinion pages um, earlier this year when you wrote a piece about about the alt-right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Originally, a piece was published about the alt-right from a guy called Nicholas Pell, an American writer. And uh, people got very angry because they felt there wasn't enough context. It was a bit of a style piece about, you know, what is, depending on the particular elements of the alt-right that you focus on, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a very far-right sort of politics. Um, uh, the, the the name alt-right is very fluid, so there's always confusion about what exactly people mean by it. Um, but certainly I wanted to try to respond to that by giving a really clear definition of what exactly it is. Um, and it seemed to be that controversy it raised a whole bunch of issues about mm. you know about the role of media and how media is changing and resp- responsibility and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But also, it raised for me this question of you're in a in a mass market quality newspaper and you're talking about a phenomenon which I would suspect for the majority of readers, both both in print and uh, and of our website, they're not that familiar with. And it's a it's a it's a really complicated phenomenon. It, it doesn't reduce very easily just to a simple black and white. Yeah, I mean, it is complex and um, it's very aware of its own complexity. Sure. You know? So um, the alt-right have really kind of thrived on um, people not really understanding the, you know, weird intricacies of the subculture. Um, and so, you know, they like sort of wrong footing journalists a lot and tricking them and uh, you know, getting them to very earnestly discuss, um, you know, jokey sort of memes and pranks and things like that. Uh, one of the things I've been arguing, though, is that in a way it, it kind of is easy to understand. Like it, we do kind of fall into their trap a little bit by by taking it as, you know, sort of this incredibly complex thing. Um, I think most people... Um, looking at it at a glance uh, can, you know, just basically, you know, anyone with a sort of moral compass can can kind of work it out pretty quickly. Uh, so I would, I'd be wary of that as well. I mean, obviously, I think it's complex or I wouldn't have written a book about it. Um, but uh, but I would also be wary of of, of um, almost like having a bit of reverence around the complexity of the subculture. Because that's almost a strategy. That's a strategy in itself. It's a strategy of dissimulation. Yes, absolutely. And the irony and everything being ironic and nobody, you can never really pin anyone down on anything, what they really mean. So that piece that I, I wrote uh, in the Irish Times sort of in response to the Nicholas Pell piece was an attempt to just be as clear as I could possibly be uh, to kind of demystify it in a way. Okay, well, maybe we could start with, because there's a there's something which pops up regularly in, in the book. Um, this is a politics podcast, but you quote, I think, in their own rather different ways, the uh, the 
Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci and the founder of uh, Breitbart News, Andrew Breitbart, who both in slightly different wording say the same thing, which is that politics stems from culture or in the words of Breitbart, I think uh, culture is downstream from politics is downstream from culture. So it starts in culture and a lot of what you're talking about here, although it has it has deep political implications, starts in culture. And you have some, to me, uh, very provocative and challenging ideas about how this particular movement is grounded in or takes its inspiration from various kinds of cultural movements which have been traditionally more associated with the left or with mm. progressive politics, such as the idea of transgression. Mm. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what made me interested in all this stuff in the first place. I actually started looking at this because I, I wrote a PhD on online anti-feminist movements. Um, and the thing that drew me to it and I found really fascinating is that precisely that they weren't like uh, the anti-feminist movements that came before. They weren't conservative um, uh, in their style and uh, they weren't coming from a kind of, you know, a typical kind of Christian conservative uh, point of view. And instead they were, well, at this point I was looking at kind of 4chan and, and you know, 4chan is basically the, the forum from which all the memes around the alt-right and all the imagery and languages kind of come from, most of it anyway. Can um, you explain first what 4chan is? Yeah, 4chan is a forum uh, which is anonymous and it's a sort of an image posting forum and it just became, because it's anonymous and because it came from this very geeky sort of anime world, it uh, produced, um, you know, a lot of uh, um, sort of, you know, expressions and memes and slang and internet culture that has sort of really influenced the internet in a very mainstream way at this point. Um, and so it, it just had a massive influence on kind of on kind of humor and sensibilities online, you know, in, in, even if people who've never heard of it have probably been influenced by it without realizing, you know. And it sets, you know, the, I mean, it sets out to shock to some extent. Yes, uh, as you say, it uses irony and humor a lot. It's kind of, there's a sort of, uh, I, may, I may not be giving people the full impression of how offensive it can be at times, but it's kind of got a cheeky kid kind of mentality to yeah, it. Yeah, well. absolutely. I mean, the, there was very much a culture of like everyone on there trying to outdo each other in posting the nastiest, kind of most horrible stuff. One of the expressions is like, cannot be unseen. So, like, you know, the stuff that's on there is so disturbing that you can never unsee it, kind of, you know. And um, uh, so that was very much the style of the thing. It was all about shock, transgression, um, you know, playfulness, I guess, in a way, and irreverence, all that kind of stuff. So that that was the spirit of trolling, of course. It was it was really like the, you know. Um, the, the maker of style of kind of like uh, the, the subculture of trolling, mm. I suppose, online in a way. Um, and this is kind of widely perceived in, in many quarters, both in left and right at, at the time, uh, as being a sort of a digital equivalent of previous popular culture movements like punk rock, for example. Yeah, I mean, they, they um, uh, there's one guy who's kind of um, in the broader milieu around the alt-right, which is, which is sometimes called the alt-light. Um, called Paul Joseph Watson, who's often made fun of for saying, you know, we are the new punk or whatever. But but it is true that in the case of 4chan, I mean, there is a kind of a punk spirit to it in a way, um, you know, because it has all those kind of qualities of, of transgression and irreverence and taboo breaking. Um, and I suppose, so that was what interested me about it. And then I sort of came up against, you know, thinking, well, like, if it has all these qualities and what what does that tell us about the content of those things, you know? Um, what does that really tell us about, you know, what transgression is? Does it have any, you know, inherent value, in other words? Um, it can just as easily take the form of the far right as it can the far left or anything in between. That to me, as I said, that I mean, that's a challenging idea, but it's true. But it, um, does that in some way... Because, I mean, I think you argue that transgression is, is a recurring theme within sort of very powerful cultural strands going back 150 years or so, certainly to the late 19th century, mm. you know, at, at the very least. And certainly I would think personally, you know, I've been influenced by by several of those movements in for one way or another for good or ill. Mm. And and it, it probably always was a lazy idea to think that they were always aligned somehow with, with progressivism or the left or, or, or whatever those things may be. Punk, for example, there is a reactionary element to punk and there was yeah. one at the time. I'm old enough to remember it. It was, a, in some sense, a reaction against some of the political impulses as well as the cultural ones of the, 90, of the 1960s. Mm. So, so 
Is it that it's apolitical transgression, this strand of transgression, or is it that it was always open to being co-opted by, by, by darker forces in this case? I think it was always open to it, but um, I, I suppose I, what I'm thinking about it is that, you know, it's kind of, it, it's almost like it's seen better days, basically. You know, it's, sure. it, it's mm. kind of run out of ideas. It's, it's run out of its usefulness um, as a cultural form. And as you say, I mean, it's only about 150 years old or so, as a, you know, and yet we can't seem to break out of it. You know, we can't seem to imagine um, any other way of, understanding, you know, art and aesthetics. Uh, so, I mean, you know, for example, when I was studying all this stuff originally, it, sort of like seven to five years ago, um, I uh, was amazed to see kind of quite progressive and usually very politically correct sort of academics um, saying that, like, you know, 4chan is the future of politics. And, you know, they were saying this is transgressive, et cetera, et cetera, in a really positive way, you know. And, and uh, you know, I remember what 4chan was like back then. It was just as nasty as it is now. It wasn't explicitly connected to the far right, but it was always very nihilistic, really nasty, totally um, misanthropic, um, full of hatred for women and minorities. I mean, you know, so it was always like that. So, so I think that's really interesting. Like, you know, if I went into an academic environment and, and, and started writing sympathetically about, you know, Tommy Robinson, I think it'd be kicked out pretty quickly, you know. And yet these people were, were writing really sympathetically about, about 4 and why, culture. Why, why do you think that was? I think it's because uh, at the time, as I say, they weren't explicitly connected to anything on the far right. And I think it's just because they had certain. It was a very shallow analysis. It was. It was. It was recognizing that they had these these kind of countercultural stylistic qualities that we associate with the left historically, and that was kind of enough, uh, you know. And it seemed like their attitude was sort of like it's transgressive, and therefore it must be progressive. And was it also seen as being hip in some ways? There are kind of a you know digital utopianism involved there Absolutely, as well. yeah. And that's the really important bit because at the time, it was around the time of Occupy Wall Street and, you know, um, and the Arab Spring and stuff like that. And, and the, the stuff that everyone was talking about at the time was like leaderlessness, protests being networked instead of hierarchical. Um, and so anything at the time that, that could be described in that way, networked, leaderless and so on, was seen as the way of the future. Um you know, Paul Mason, for example, wrote, wrote in this way. And everyone who was writing about the, those... He still does to some extent. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Everyone at the time who, who wrote about sort of those those um, protest movements was, you know, there was that digital utopianism about it. Mm. And so 4chan actually had all of those qualities that they were describing as uh, the, the style that politics would take in the future. It was completely anonymous. You know, it had a kind of anti-celebrity ethic... Um, it was, you know, uh, uh, you know, leaderless and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was swarm-like and, and all these kinds of things. So uh, it, it, there's almost like a weird correlation between kind of the way that like Silicon Valley people have been writing about, um, you know, the future of politics and the way that these maybe more, um, more far-left gesturing people were writing about the, the, the leaderlessness of... How so? These protest <clears throat> movies, well, because they're all saying some version of the same thing, which is we don't need organizations, we don't need parties, we don't need hierarchies, we don't need any kind of old-fashioned institution. Everything will be replaced now by the swarm, the hive mind. It's like a million different expressions for the same thing, which is basically this leaderless form. Uh, and that that would be that would replace, uh, you know, because for years, you know, there's this whole idea that that uh, political parties are dead and people are not interested in, in politics anymore and this kind of thing. So everyone's looking around for the future, you know. And so when those protests happened, they were all really triumphalist because they were saying, here it is, it's it's come at last, you know. So, for example, Clay Shirky, who's a big, um, you know, Wired magazine, Silicon Valley sort of person, was was saying the same stuff as Paul Mason, for example, who's, who's quite significantly to the left of him. Sure. Then the idea really being that power would be distributed from a number of small centres to a much more, you know, broadly based type of, type of thing, power expressed through information mostly in this case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that, that power would not need to be organised in the way that we once did and that it would instead be 
be it would take on the the form of something like a swarm where where you know people would share knowledge and people would uh, understand how to work together intuitively in this sort of mass uh, way uh, without any any structures or organizations. I suppose, I mean, there, there are a number of things I wonder about that. And to be honest, I, I, I struggle to, to grasp uh, some of where the hell all this, this, this stuff is going. And one is that you do have this sort of eruption of something or other happening through 4chan and, uh, and on other platforms as well. But it does seem to be aligned with you call it the alt-right, call it the reactionary right, which is fundamentally, among other things, is an impulse for a return to a level of control that is perceived to have existed in the past and that doesn't exist anymore. You know, mm. you, you, people call it fascism, people can call it, you know, whatever they want, but it's about, you know, it's anti-democratic. It tends to be attracted to the notion of uh, of um, the state um, um, controlling through violence, through the concept of the strong man. That all seems a million miles away from these slightly vaguely hippie-ish notions of, you know, distributed power. Um, we're all going to be, you know, we're all going to be more equal. I just wonder how the, how one get got to the other. You know? I know, it is pretty strange, all right. And I was happy in the book to just point out the strangeness of it and, and sort of leave it at that because, you know, I, I mean, I think that the that the, the more traditionally sort of uh, recognizably far-right elements in it are probably going to be the ones that will remain stronger. Uh, I can already see a lot of the that kind of, um, you know, uh, chaotic sort of anarchic 4chan stuff kind of fading away a little bit, you know, because the thing is, um, it's it's a style and it's a method of er- disrupting things, but it doesn't actually have, you know, a manifesto. It doesn't have a set of particular ideas, whereas the, the, the more recognizably fascistic uh, kind of small hardcore of the alt-right, they do have ideas. They've been working them out for a very long time and they're not stupid people, you know, they... they um, They've been trouncing interviewers, for example, uh, you know, since Trump got elected. And uh, they're definitely the, the people to watch out for in a way. And then the thing that strikes me, however ridiculous, say, the comparison with punk or whatever it might be, you know, the Ramones, to the best of my knowledge, didn't actually get Ronald Reagan elected. But there is a sort of a direct chain and a connection between uh the kind of stuff you're describing here, which I'm sure to many of our listeners will sound very abstruse and something they're only tangentially aware of if they're aware of at all. And then a series of other things, a kind of collapse of traditional media formats, the rise of new media formats and the rise of of, of these figures, you know, uh, even this week. Um, we hear that Infowars, Alex Jones' site, has been accredited to the White House. Mm. So you have this. Um, um, John Ronson wrote a wrote a, a Kindle short last year about trying to track down Alex Jones, who he had done a, one of his sort of sardonic uh, documentaries around as this kind of mad marginal figure about you know a decade ago, and now he's in the White House mm. or his representatives are in the White House. So how did that connection happen into injected really into the mainstream of of certainly American politics anyway? No, it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it was simply unimaginable, um, you know, just a few months ago, I was going to say years, um, you know, Alex Jones used to be a joke, you know, I mean, uh, so it is extraordinary. But I suppose the collapse of, of a kind of a mainstream is certainly part of it on both ends, on the obscure online culture end and the more mainstream politics end, uh, because, um, you know, Trump is certainly not a He's not an establishment figure, like in in lots of ways. I mean, obviously, he's an heir, and you know, he's he's not the man of the people that some kind of um, of the rhetoric is made out. But I mean, the, these kind of conspiracy theory sites—they're part of the collapse of mainstream media in a way, um, uh, because they, you know, people think that they're being lied to, and then somebody comes along who seems to be anti-establishment, who's revealing these horrible truths. And uh, and that has a real attraction for people, especially because of the kind of obsessive nature of, of, you know, the Internet in a way. You know, it's very easy to go kind of down a rabbit hole in a way that you wouldn't if you were just reading a newspaper from cover to cover, you mm. know. Yeah, maybe we should go back to Antonio Gramsci. Always a good idea anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and my idea. So this idea of the connection between uh, the seamless connection, really, between culture and politics and... That, that they're far more connected, perhaps, than most people who come into this podcast, you know, possibly think. 
Yeah, I mean, the idea of the Gramscian connection was uh, Antonio Gramsci, essentially, the, the, the idea that he's most famous for is that um, the, the traditional sort of uh, Marxian idea that you, you change uh, the world through, uh, through uh, the, the organization of economic production was wrong. And that instead, uh, because we lived in this, um, you know, very mediated sort of age, you had to change the culture. Uh, and that politics would follow from that. And I was noticing because, you know, that is sort of closer to my own background politically, I was sort of recognizing this all the time because the alt-right would have conversations about moving the Overton window, for example, uh, by which they mean, um, you know, moving the, 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 the level of acceptable thought over to the right. So the Overton window is an idea which I think began in economics, which is an idea that there's a there's accepted frames within which most mainstream political discourse takes place. And if you veer too far to the left or indeed too far to the right, you're outside that. So you're not going to get a column in the Irish Times or whatever it might be. You're not kind of assimilated as part of the popular discourse. And the idea that you can move that one way or the other might be a kind of a, a specific political objective. Yeah. And so, I mean, they, they work actually kind of successful at it in a way. I mean, the that whole phase of like, you know, 4chan and even Milo Yiannopoulos, um, who, who is part of what is now called the old light, uh, who, you know, uh, wouldn't be as far right politically, at least not openly or explicitly uh, as the old right. Um, but he and, 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 you know, that whole movement, that trolley kind of style of politics, they were like the kind of shock troops and they, they smashed the taboos and in a way like opened up the space to politics significantly to the right of themselves. And did they manage to do that because, what you referenced earlier, that the Overton window itself, uh, the traditional Overton window that existed in mass media was broken already because media was broken? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of the, the sort of architecture of it. But but they definitely played a role in, in I mean, they were successful in breaking taboos, uh, you know, that have been there since the Holocaust, you know, um, uh, the way the Jews are spoken about now, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a normal part of everyday discourse now to be, you know, directly dealing with people who want to talk about the Jewish question, you know, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of racist discourse that was just totally off the table and considered totally taboo is kind of back now. I mean, you know, the majority of people still oppose it, but but it is being discussed in a way that could, you know, would have just been inconceivable such a short time ago. So they were actually quite successful at that. Now, you write um, at some length in the book, I think, about perhaps another way of looking at the Overton window, which is the sort of tradition of left, left progressivism over the last 30 or 40 years, what sometimes um, described perhaps simplistically, as identity politics, that that's what's driven a lot of the left. And you quoted the the American socialist writer uh, Shuja Haider, um, and she said, um, it should go without saying that left liberal identity politics and alt-right white nationalism are not com- comparable. The problem is that they are compatible. So there is a sort of mirroring going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when identity is the basis for your entire political paradigm, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that the right starts to imitate that. Um, And I do think that's a problem. Unfortunately, when you say that, you're always accused of comparing the two. Um, But but as I said, you know, um, it isn't a comparison. It's saying, you know, when all we have is identity and, and, and the idea that the way you do politics is you group together along the lines of identity and, and you organize yourself in that way then, yeah, of course we're going to have uh, a reaction of, you know, uh, you know, say, well, men's groups and groups aligning themselves along the lines of white, being white and along the lines of race. Because now what they're able to say is, well, everyone else has their group. Why can't we have ours? And you could argue that that's, you know, not an entirely unreasonable position. Yeah, I mean, the the, the problem, I suppose, is that, you know, uh, they, they, they're not taking into account... You know, I suppose the levels, particularly in the case of the white uh, politics, they're, they're not taking into account the fact that, you know, people had to organize themselves in that way because they had no power. So, you know, there was, a, you know, for example, if you think of the women's movement in, in, in the 70s, I mean, women organized themselves because the kind of moment in history kind of called for it, you know, and they were able to, you know, make, create these massive, you know, national organizations uh, which really did change kind of Western societies very profoundly. Um, now we've gotten to a point where those movements have been really successful. So the other groups then are saying, well, 
you know, women have all of these things which they which they gained through organizing as women. So now we need ours. Uh, and, you know, in the case of men, um, I think that's a little bit different because, I mean, there are very legitimate sort of men's issues, you know, that that uh, that I think, you know, are, are, are you know, do need to be looked at and, and taken seriously. Um, in the case of white uh, advocacy, it's a little more complicated because you're talking about, you know, um, the potential for really kind of like race conflict in, in somewhere like America, you know, which is a really terrifying prospect. So, I mean, we have to think about you know, we have to come up with something better, I think, than um, not to say nobody can, you know, organize themselves along these lines. But we have to come up with some kind of a paradigm that is that, that moves beyond, uh, you know, the, the politics that define the sort of mid 20th century. You're quite critical of something which you kind of describe as sort of Tumblr culture, referring to another online platform where which, as as you lay it out in the book, is sort of obsessed with details of identity you have a, you have one of those long lists which people will be familiar with they popped up everywhere over the last few years about the the multifarious ways in which people can define their own gender identity and i certainly get the impression that you're not that impressed by the list no i'm not <laughs> uh yeah i mean <clears throat> the online politics in a way was like just a more extreme version of stuff that was going on on a more mainstream level um, and it was taking identity politics to its logical conclusion, where, whereby everyone everyone does politics through kind of obsessively self-analyzing and self-expressing, and you know, you know, inventing their own u- unique identities. You know, um, and again, kind of like the transgressive stuff, I really feel this has truly run its course. It, it has you know, outlasted its usefulness. It's, it, I don't see this as a progressive thing. I don't see where it's going. Um, you know, it, it, it's in a way a kind of a weird, almost like countercultural, like Thatcherism, you know, because it's it's so individualistic. Uh, it's all about everyone having this almost like, you know, very much like the kind of, uh, almost like consumer culture in a way. Everyone having this unique identity that they that they can express and that they can sort of, you know, navel gaze over. Um, I mean, the reason that, you know, so many of the problems we face now uh, where people can't afford, you know, basic things like housing that, you know, their parents' generation might have taken for granted. Um, And, you know, uh, work is so um, casualized and, you know, the millennial generation are coming in to face all these huge problems. And the reason is precisely because of, you know, the, the romanticization of, you know, um, anti-organizational politics, uh, horizontalist, we don't need political parties, we don't need organizations, we don't need trade unions, we can all be individuals and we can just kind of express ourselves in these really transgressive kind of complex ways. I mean, that has got us absolutely nowhere. You you write also about the way in which um, <clears throat> these sort of movements, which are based in theory at least on notions of uh, complete inclusivity and respect for uh, for everybody's identity, can be absolutely vicious towards anybody who steps out of line. Yeah, I mean, it's been extraordinarily... I, I often think people will look back at this time. I mean, this is why I wanted to actually document it in the book, in a way, because people will look back at it as a moment of kind of collective madness, um, I mean, the, the, the fallouts that happened in political circles are just unbelievable uh, over these kind of issues. Um, and the, the, the kind of what is called call-out culture basically ha- has defined kind of um, political movements um, over the last, um, you know, uh, the period of the book, basically, sort of five, six, seven, eight years. What exactly is call-out culture? It's basically where it's a kind of a purging, a constant purging of dissenting thought. Um, and it's characterised activists, left-wing activist movements and kind of left-wing online spaces um, in particular. And it's really what made a lot of young people... I mean, a lot of people will be wondering how can this possibly be the case that this many people have moved to the far right. Um, But it's actually because a lot of young people uh, had the experience of being, you know, constantly sort of hounded and harassed and 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 um ganged up on because they got some little tiny bit of you know uh language wrong around 
you know, some political issue, sensitive political issue. Um, and, you know, that experience uh, is actually very, very common among younger people. And, uh, and a lot of them are like, you know, find the left totally repulsive as a result. And then somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos comes along. He does this big college campus tour, kind of pro-free speech, again, very irreverent, very anti-PC. And of course, he has this enormous appeal. Do people then get um, dragged into a set of political positions? Do they get, I'm not, I'm not sure if I can think of the right metaphor for this, but it almost seems to be, you know, to operate like a, ga- a gateway drug of sorts, you know, that, uh, and I see there was some discussion in the wake of the of the American election last year that there were actual um, people with a political agenda encouraging people to engage in discussions, which, which at the outset seemed to be relatively harmless, but then gradually dragged them further into what were essentially neo-Nazi bulletin boards and things like that. Is there a process that goes on where somebody starts off maybe just a bit pissed off about the about you know the liberal left as they see it and they end up wearing a brown shirt? Yeah, I mean, in fact, um, you know, Nicholas Pell, who wrote the article that, that started this huge row um, about the alt-right, um, you know, himself used to be on the left, um, on the far left, actually. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, people have very bitter experiences of, of you know, being, you know, personally attacked and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, um, the problem is that they, they, they see these arguments that people to the right of them are making and they then say to their um, friends, you know, what do you think of this? Is this is, is this right? I mean, you know, and instead of instead of actually getting some kind of um, uh, um you know, decent analysis of it or or an honest kind of discussion of the issue, they just get immediately shot down. So in other words, the right is presenting this or particularly that kind of uh, old light, um, very libertarian, pro-free speech kind of um, online milieu is presenting this world of ideas where you can think anything and you can say anything and you can explore any idea no matter how taboo. And then on the other side, the kind of tumblerized, like turbo liberal sort of like politics. I don't even want to call it left because it's not that connected to the kind of historical left. Um, uh, but that is presenting a world of just being constantly bashed for for saying anything that slightly steps out of line. So then people move over and they start kind of going onto forums and they start seeing information that runs contrary to what their, in many cases, liberal parents and teachers have been saying. So, for example, they grow up hearing gender is a social construct, but then they see all this information saying, you know, look, here is, you know, here are these different studies and kind of scientific evidence showing the very significant uh, uh, force that, you know, hormones, for example, has on people's behavior, uh, the different sort of brain patterns uh, between men and women, just as an example. Um, and, and uh, you know, so in other words, the, the right are presenting this world of ideas and openness and kind of and, and taboo breaking and so on. And and the the kind of Tumblr liberals are, are sort of shutting everything down. Uh, but then the problem is that when you get into, uh, you know, that world, um, one of the features of it is that it's extremely uh, anti-moral um, and has this very Nietzschean, as I say in the book, uh, kind of politics. It's, it's It kind of relishes uh, anti-moralism. And I think that's where people end up going much further right. Because it, it sees moralism as hypocrisy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, you'll find a lot of the critiques of the, of the so, well, so-called critiques of the left are actually Nietzschean critiques of Christian morality. Uh, they, they, they don't say that explicitly, but, but they always show morality as, or they always show sort of the, the moralism of the left, if you like, uh, in a very Nietzschean way. Their analysis is Nietzschean. So they regard it as a kind of, as you say, hypocrisy and as a way to manipulate people and also as a way to romanticize the underdog. So, you know, um, nobody should try to succeed and, you know, everyone should should just romanticize being, uh, you know, sort of low status and that kind of thing. So uh, a lot of them have that kind of very Nietzschean analysis, even if they have never read Nietzsche. It's it's definitely in there, like in the case of Gramsci as well. The question of gender has come up a couple of times over the course of this conversation, but I w- I'd, I'd like you to address it more specifically because it does, it, it runs throughout the book and in fact in the, the part of the book, there's some interesting thoughts about how gender operates in this and particularly particularly how some of these processes, platforms, movements um, might appeal to young men at the present moment. 
Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, again, the, the anti-moral uh, problem. And this is why people move so far to the right and become really dehumanizing in the way that they speak about women and uh, refugees and ethnic minorities and so on, which is that they they start to see human beings as like computers, as essentially like systems that you can hack. So if you think of like the game um, and, you know, I mean, the game is, is very mild, basically. When you read it now, it seems like a kind of a harmless book. But the seed was there very early on for this idea that, you know, human beings are essentially irrational, but they are like machines. So if you can, or they're like systems. So if you can just understand the system, then you can trick it. Uh, so you can trick, for example, women into being attracted to you if you can kind of fool them by tapping into these um, these irrational kind of uh, unconscious, uh, um, you know, social Darwinian kind of motives that are at work. Um and, uh, you know, and so the problem then is that, you know, you start to see human beings in that way. And it's a very small journey from that to uh, seeing, applying the same ideas to race and, you know, um, genetic inferiority and superiority and IQ and all these kinds of things. Um, and essentially kind of seeing um, society as uh, full of problems that are solvable if you just get rid of the the cancer kind of, you know, whatever it is. In many ways, that sounds quite similar to what we know about the radicalization of young Muslim men. Mm. Uh, it led to actions like the one in Manchester last week. Yeah, I mean, the comparison is not facetious. I mean, when you make the comparison, people on the alt-right get very angry because they see themselves as as kind of the, the only ones fighting the, the Islamist movement, uh, which, I mean, is, you know, the people fighting the Islamist movement are like the Kurdish resistance who are, of course, Muslims. Uh, but, but you know, there are real similarities there. I mean, it is very much about, you know, uh, one of one of the alt-rights, like Richard Spencer, for example, who's a kind of um, one of their most prominent spokespeople, one of his ambitions is to have a, a white sort of an empire. <clears throat> so, in other words, a pan-national white identity. A caliphate, if you will. Absolutely. And it's, so it's exactly the same as the Islamists. Like the Islamists, in a way, are like an ultra-reactionary almost replacement for the things that have been destroyed in the Middle East, which is the pan-Arab movement and the socialist movement, actually. I mean, you know, all these countries like Iraq had like massive, uh, you know, uh, far-left kind of movements, really organized movements that they've all been destroyed. And so this ultra-reactionary stuff comes in its place. Um, but it is an attempt to form strength across a kind of across nations. Um, and the alt-right is also saying we all of all white people need to uh, have a kind of collective consciousness. Uh, and if you come from Ireland, that kind of this it seems kind of absurd because, of course, our history has been a conflict between two groups of white people, basically. Um, although Irish people are, are questionable uh, sometimes in terms of should they be allowed in the in the this white empire because we're, we're a low IQ category of white people. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud of it too. Yeah. How. How significant is all, and this may seem like a ridiculous question, but it, it, it can be quite difficult sometimes to get a handle on whether one is underestimating or overestimating the significance uh, of, of all this stuff and the potential it has to affect all our lives. Yeah, it is very hard to measure it. I mean, I can I can only go on a certain amount of intuition uh, in a way because... Um, what people usually want to know are the numbers, you know, how many sort of members does it have? But you can't really do that because you're looking at online forums in which everyone is anonymous or lo most people, even on Twitter, you know, most of the time you're dealing with pseudonyms. Um, and you don't know if you're looking at one person who has five accounts, you know, or 10 accounts. Um, so it, it's very hard. You have to kind of deal with a certain amount of intuition. But but my my feeling is that it will be very significant. I mean, it already has been. You know, for youth culture, kind of, it's been really significant. Um, Everywhere? In the English-speaking world, certainly. Um, it, it, that's an interesting phenomenon, too, actually, that it's, it's, so, it's so similar across the English-speaking world. Uh, it hasn't really managed to penetrate much outside of that. Um, and so it has made, you know, it has changed the discourse on race. It has made a lot of stuff that would be unsayable before sayable now. And, um, and Does so that then leads to, it would seem inevitably to lead to further polarization. Um, 
more, more extremes and less less centre ground on which some kind of meaningful debate can take place? Well, I mean, the centre ground is collapsing in all kinds of ways. That's sort of what the book is about in a way. The, the centre ground is collapsing politically um, and the centre of politics increasingly doesn't really have any answers for people, you know, uh, and that's a real problem. Um, I mean, you know, so, for example, um, the centre, you know, the centre of politics, for example, has no way of dealing with the things that millennials kind of see as shaping their lives. So people are incredibly frustrated with the fact that we're, we seem to be just in this endless economic slow decline that nobody seems to be able to halt. Um, you know, p- young people can see that their opportunities are collapsing, but we, we have all these like, you know, uh, we have this kind of um, uh, all these economic opportunities that, you know, it's very hard to understand how, for example, we can have, you know, constantly increased automation, but people's basic standards of living are declining. Um, so young men, for example, in particular, and this is why these movements have been so attractive to young men, you know, know that that their traditional role is gone uh, and there's nothing really that has come along to replace it, nothing very powerful. Um, I think the centre of politics, which is very moderate and very kind of careful and isn't likely to really come up with new ideas in any way, isn't really addressing that. I mean, I've tried to address it a little bit by saying, you know, um, that uh, rather than, you know, the rights answer to, you know, what they see as problems around gender right now, their answer is that women should go back to a more traditional role and, you know, return to the home and so on. But, you know, uh, it's been a kind of a goal of the labor movement going back decades that with automation, we should be working less and getting more for, for, you know, the, the shorter working days and weeks that we should be doing. I mean, where did those goals go? Why don't? Why are they never really talked about anymore? Um, but I mean, what you're describing is, in some ways, an existential crisis as much as an economic one, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, so the right will say, you know, um, there's this huge boom in like childlessness, particularly among the professional class in the West. Um, we're not. Ireland actually still is, but most of the West is not replacing itself in terms of. Uh, you know, birth rates and so on, the liberals then say, well, you know, we'll just have mass immigration and then we can, you know, that that will be a, a technocratic way of solving the, uh, you know, inverted pyramid of the, the welfare system so that there's a more even number of people, you know, paying in and, and, and uh, taking pensions out and so on. Sure. Um, but I mean, that is such a bad answer to, to the right. I mean, the right's conclusions are so wrong and they're so horrifying but they are at least trying to deal with a real phenomenon in some way that actually is important. I mean, if you, you know, they, we have to say, I mean, they are right in saying if you completely change the demographics of a country very quickly, it's going to change the country in a profound way. And like why, you know, we have to actually be able to talk about that. Those of us who would never accept the really horrifying answers that the right have because they're, they don't think moral questions are important and, you know, they, they don't seem to have a sort of nor- normal, like, moral compass that most people have. The rest of us have to be actually talking about that and saying, um, you know, what kind of new paradigm can we use to deal with uh, these issues? How do we, you know, is it enough to just have more cultural individualism, liberal kind of identity politics? Is that really going to be enough to actually cohere a society that is going to change so you know, massively in the coming decades. Do you see any sign of that happening? I think people are starting to think about it. Yeah, I actually do. I I, I think it's in embryo, but I do see that you know um, there are there are a lot of kind of dissident like wings of different things popping up. You know, so for example, uh, Jacobin Magazine, which is you know left wing magazine in America, um, I see a bit of hope there. You know that that that's you know these kind of marginal groups are having you know are are kind of refusing to just, uh, you know, uh, go along with certain types of liberal dogma. And they're saying, you know, we need something else, something very different in terms of the way we understand, you know, how to organize ourselves politically, um, how to make the future better, essentially. Um, And that, you know, one of the reasons Hillary Clinton, you know, was so disliked was because she was precisely saying more of the same. Donald Trump 
you know, uh, I mean, they were like, actually, she was slightly more popular than him. So we should actually correct people when they when they say that he's this like wildly popular sort of populist candidate. He really wasn't. Neither of them were popular. Sure. Uh, but but uh, he he's I suppose the appeal that he did have is that he felt like a break from something, you know, and same with Brexit. It was like, we're going to just throw a grenade into this because something has to change, you know, and, and something has to halt the slow decline that we appear to be in. What about the suggestion that this political impulse is a is a it is clearly a reactionary? It's a reaction against other trends in society, but it may, in that sense, be a reaction which is ultimately doomed to lose because, you know, the the the, the white working class reaction epitomised by the Trump election last year, with as you say a minority of the vote, was a reaction against um, inevitable demographic changes, which are going to continue in the mm. United States, which means that people of colour will be in the majority in the country within the next within the next couple of decades. Mm. So is this a normal sort of attempted counter-revolution against maybe, you know, forces that are that are inevitable? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, you know, um, their, their, uh, their alternatives, their conclusions are uh, actually, you know, if, if you, I'm amazed that when they've been interviewed, nobody has really challenged them on this. But I mean, if you look at the alt-right's actual conclusions... Uh, whatever, you know, bits of truth there might be in their analysis some of the time, well, in part because a lot of the, their analysis is not actually original uh, and, and they're borrowing much of it from, from the left and from all over the place. Um, but, but their conclusions would require, I mean, at the risk of sounding sort of very dramatic, their conclusions would necessitate a, a massive war on a huge scale across all of the Western world. I mean, people don't just leave, you know, um, and, you know, so so their conclusion, conclusions are impossible, you know. Uh, and so and we have to keep that in mind. I mean, in that sense, I don't think they're a threat because I don't think they could ever achieve those things. But they are going to cause an awful lot of antagonism. And uh, we have to come up with something that is really answers these problems. And, and, you know, people change the way that they identify all the time. I mean, you know. Um, the cultural nationalist movement here in Ireland like redefined uh, Irishness so that people understood themselves as Irish. The feminist movement uh, did the same for women, women that might have otherwise thought of themselves as a, a Danish person or a, a bourgeois person or whatever, started to identify themselves as female. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the goal of, of Marxism was to do the same for workers internationally, which was a beautiful idea. And uh, now we don't really have any big ideas, you know, um, and but we do have to come up with something that isn't factions of identities warring with each other, because if that happens, uh, the, the, the far right is going to do very well. There's one thing I've been wondering about a lot, uh, and I have never received a satisfactory answer to it. So uh, feel free not to have a satisfactory answer to it. But Ireland is one of the few countries in Northern Europe or North America um, that uh, that doesn't have a coherent radical right, far right movement. Do you have any idea why that might be? Well, I mean, we have actually had pretty liberal immigration policies, so it's not that. Um, you know, uh, we've had similar levels to lots of other countries in Europe that have really far right movements. I think it has to do with the fact that our sense of national identity is linked historically to an anti-imperialist movement. Um, and so that if you're a nationalist in Ireland, you might end up in Sinn Féin, where if you were openly racist, I mean, it just wouldn't be tolerated. Mm. Um, and so you're linked to a tradition which also sees itself as part of the tradition of anti-imperialist movements in South Africa and India and so on. Um, so I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I also think there's something actually really, I mean, to, to try to sort of end on something a little more hopeful, maybe uh, that there is something really positive in the Irish example, because um, what you find is that where these far right movements really gain ground is where you have um, people who are very neurotic about their national identity and very uncomfortable about their national identity and who are striking out against the, the feeling that they are forced to feel shame. Um, so, you know... For post-imperial reasons <clears throat> or for... Yeah, mm. yeah, or in the case of America, the history of slavery and so on. Now, you might say, well, they should feel shame. 
But I, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's good, it's good to know these things so that they're never repeated. But, uh, but I don't think it's a very productive thing, uh, actually, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, certainly if you look at uh, some of the good sort of um, histories of the rise of fascism, um, one of the, the thing that, things that comes up a lot is this idea that um, Nazism in particular was a response to national shame mm. um, after World War One. I mean, uh, that, that, that's a nice idea. I'm not sure it completely applies to, you know, the rise of a far right party in Sweden and other Scandinavian Nordic countries, for example, which don't necessarily have that history. But you see, but their national identity is in some way linked to whiteness in a way that it isn't in Ireland. You know, because Irish people weren't even considered white up until pretty recently, uh, we don't, our national identity doesn't sit very well with the idea of being part of some international white group of people. Mm. I, I <laughs> do I agree with you? I know I, I, I think that's probably true. I think there are probably issues in relation to, in relation to immigration becoming a live wire hot political issue. I think the fact that it is still such a relatively recent phenomenon here. So, for example, you don't have a generation, a second generation of of adult people coming from those communities still yet yet in that in that country. And also, it's it's kind of the dynamics of of migration, the the variety of countries it it, it has come from into Ireland, perhaps has had a kind of a, um, I suppose, a kind of diluting effect on the kind of the extreme polarization which you've seen in some countries that that that, that have had immigration. So we don't, for the moment, anyway, mm. have have visible ghettos mm. you know? yeah absolutely um but you know if you take say the american context and, and america is where a lot of this is coming from and that's not a coincidence you know if you look at the kind of rhetoric of um some of the representatives of um the old right when they're speaking to kind of a sympathetic audience will say um what i really sense is that they're saying we don't want to feel shame anymore about our heritage and our identity. So they're saying, you know, America was built by white people and, you know, we we should be proud of our European heritage. Uh, so they are actually like mimicking all these other groups who are saying we're proud of our Scottish heritage or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but uh, so so they're kind of saying like we refuse to feel shamed and we are going to be proud of our identity. Um, and, um, you know, the, so it is a response to feeling shamed. Now, if you're from Ireland, you don't really feel that shame in the first place, you know. I mean, and also, you know, you can fly the Irish flag and not feel like it's some reactionary weird thing, you know. I can think of one example on the island of Ireland where you can actually see those phenomena, though, and that's with um, loyalist and unionist communities in Northern mm. Ireland to some extent. Absolutely. But I mean, that's the shame again, right, isn't mm. it? I mean, sure. they're, they're, yeah. they're saying we're not going to feel shamed. Uh, we're proud of our identity, but it's it's a um, it's a way of saying we are proud of our identity, but we're aware that the that the people we're aiming this at don't want us to be proud of our identity. You know what I mean? And so in Ireland, you know, you go abroad and everyone, you know, th- is happy to talk to you because you're Irish, and you know, we're sort of very relaxed about our national identity. Actually, I think compared to a lot of other places, um, and you know, so for example, when the big um, anti-austerity kind of demonstrations were happening. There were Irish flags everywhere. Um, I remember like a British and I think not coincidentally German, uh, you know, progressive friends of mine saying, "That's isn't that very, you know, isn't that very exclusionary that you have all these national flags? Like, what is this, some kind of nationalist parade? And I just thought, well, thank God, you know, uh, we, we're actually, you know, being comfortable with your national identity actually is less conducive to these far right movements. Um, it's it's where everyone's sort of neurotic about their national identity that you find these things cropping up. Andrew Nagel, thanks very much for joining us. Kill All Normies, Online Culture Wars from 4chan and Tumblr to Trump and the Alt-Right is published later this month by Zero Books and you can read an interview by Patrick Frayn with Angela in this weekend's Irish Times. But that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and remember you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. So until the next time, goodbye. Thanks very much indeed for listening.